was good. Awesome. Good. All right. Um, this evening, we are going to start with a clip from one of my favorite trilogies, The Lord of the Rings. How many of you have seen The Lord of the Rings? Yes? Some? Some? All right. This isn't too bloody, so um, I wouldn't uh, do that to you. Only if you were all men. Okay, especially junior high boys. We all get into it. But let me, just give me one second here. Oh, that's pretty cool. There it is. All right. This is called The Breach of Minus Terrace. It's in the last trilogy, last uh, movie of the trilogy called The Return of the King. And um, the, the orcs, right? Sherry, you got to have to help here. You have no idea what it is. All right, anyway, watch it. You'll get the idea, and uh, we'll move from there, okay? <laughs> tape, tape, tape. I need tape. I need tape. Yeah, I just tried that. That didn't work. It just came right off. Remember it now? <laughs> Love it. Okay. The breach of Mina Tirith, right? Okay, um, the reason I showed you that clip is because of what we're studying tonight, which is being established in the faith. Being established, that's the key word. And the word means to settle or fix what is wavering, doubtful, or weak. Whenever you attack, at least in medieval times, a castle, or fortification, you tack it at its weakest spot. And the weakest spot is always the gate. It's always the gate. Um, and so what you try to do when you know an attack is coming is fortify the gate. And sometimes they would put extra beams of lumber on the other side of the gate, and then sometimes they would stick massive beams um, on an angle to hold the gate solidly shut against these onslaughts. Now, our gate that leads to the place where our faith resides, our faith resides within our heart. You receive Jesus Christ within your heart. And the assaults trying to get to the heart where your faith resides is through your mind. That's the gate. That's the gate that is always under assault. And it doesn't matter how old you get in the Lord. 
you're always under assault all the time. The Satan, the Satan, Satan, the whisperer, the adversary is always seeking to cause you to doubt whether your faith is real, whether you believe the right thing. And the onslaught is like those big, ugly things that come breaking through first that sort of, you know, make your eyes, whoa, what is that? But still, still, there is something we can do about it. Our faith is held in the chambers of our hearts, and it needs spiritual resources in order to stand firm, to stay strong, and to endure. That's why we seek to establish you in your faith every time that you walk through these doors. One of the things that I say to you is that I pray that your faith is stronger when you leave than when it was when you came in. I pray that you received some fortification. Now, the aim here is to make your faith strong enough to resist or withstand the attacks so that you're not taken by force, that you are uncomparable, unconquerable in Christ. And that's uh, what Paul is trying to do here in the book of Thessalonians. So if you're there in the first book of Thessalonians, chapter 2, Paul is going to talk about establishing these precious believers in the faith, okay? And his concern for every church that he founded or planted was the fact that they would stay in the Lord, that they would stand firm in Christ, that their faith, even though it's going to be assaulted by a lot of different things, whether it's uh, philosophies of the world, whether it's persecutions coming from family members or other faiths, whether it is uh, trials that seem to be overwhelming, whatever comes to assault your faith, that you stand strong. His focus on churches never was concerned about health, wealth, or self-esteem, or ease of life, but rather the spiritual character of life. That was what Paul was always concerned about, and he was never satisfied just to watch people get saved and nurtured. He wants them established, fortified, strengthened in the faith, and able to stand. So tonight, this is what we're going to learn. Paul is going to teach us how to establish new believers in the faith by means of loving relationships, ministry of the word, Shared suffering, intercession, and reminders that Jesus is returning. Sandwiched in all of that is the return of Jesus Christ. All right, let's start with the means of a loving relationship. Establishing you in your faith by the means of a loving relationship. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. And Father, right now, I just ask you to anoint the teaching of your word, and I ask you to help me to be articulate and to divide, rightly divide the word of truth in Jesus' name. It says, We, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Now, first of all, he says that he was taken away from them for a short time. Do you remember that whole thing? that he had come to them from Berea, or, yes, and he had been chased down by the Judaizers, remember? And they're, everywhere he goes, he's getting chased out of one city after another. They're threatening to stone him. They're trying to stone him, kill him if they could, so he has to run. So he's only there for a few weeks, 
maybe a few months, and then he had to beat feet and get out of there because the persecution was coming his way again. He had to leave. So he was only there for a short time. And he says that he endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. And basically, is that I long to see you. I want to know how you're doing. I want to make sure that what I planted there as a church has been established, that it's there and that you're growing in the Lord, that you haven't fallen away. Because your being established in Christ is our hope and our joy and our crown of rejoicing when Jesus Christ comes again. He's going to be able to stand before God and say, Hey, Lord, I'd like to introduce you um, to Teresa and Craig Lyon. Teresa and Craig, here's Jesus. Proud of knowing you, and I'm really proud of knowing my Lord, how good it is to introduce people who are one in heart and spirit. And then, of course, the greatest joy would be able to hear from the Lord as he's looking at me, saying, well done, well done. Yeah, right on. Now, Paul starts off here by calling these saints brethren. Uh, he uses it as a term of endearment. As a matter of fact, he uses that word 21 times in both of his letters to the Thessalonians. Um, and, of course, he's including in their sisters, so you know that it's a, just a general term for all believers. And he saw himself as one of them. He's an apostle. He's an apostle. That means he has authority, but he doesn't think his authority means anything. At least he doesn't have to use his authority. He's just, just like you. He's just like me. He's just Paul. Now, we would have a hard time with that, right? We see him walk through the door. Oh, guys, that's psst, psst, it's Paul. Paul the Apostle's here. And all of a sudden, you're making sure that everything is, you're at the right page of the Bible, okay? And your cell phone's been turned off and all of that kind of thing. He saw himself as one of them. Though he has an authoritative role to play in his office as an apostle, he relates to them as a family member. That's first and foremost. And here's the point. The attitude in discipling makes all the difference. Your attitude towards the people you are discipling. And let me just say this. You should have two really strong relationships among believers in Christ. One of them is to have someone who is discipling you, a Paul in your life or a Pauline in your life. And you also need to have a Timothy in your life. And I don't know what the female version of the word Timothy and the name Timothy is, but Timothina, Timothet, I don't know. But the idea is, is that you need to be, have two relationships that you are always in. One is that you are discipling someone and that someone is discipling you. That, that's the commission, right? Matthew 28, go into all the world making, making, thank you, of all nations, teaching them everything that I've commanded you. Now, can you mass produce disciples? You cannot mass produce disciples. You got to get down into the nitty gritty. You got to get down to the down and dirty into people's lives. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Right? Okay. And, and by the way, it isn't just for the paid staff either to be making disciples. Certainly, um, the paid staff should be making disciples and better be making disciples <coughs> because they should be leading by example. But it isn't just for them. All right. So your attitude in discipling makes all the difference. People need to know that you really care and that you're not just selling them something. It's not just to make more members in your church, but that you really do care about them personally. Now, he says that he was taken away from them, right? But if you have a new international version, they use an interesting word for that, orphaned. He was orphaned from them for a short time, like a child taken from the parents or family. Now, he's not saying that they are the parents and he is the child. If he were to say anything, he would say that he is the father and that they are the children. But the separation is what he's trying to get to. The emotional separation from them was 
hard on him. He was leading them into Christ and he was enjoying their fellowship. He was just in love with these people and like that he was taken away from them. And he says he endeavored more eagerly to see their faces with great desire. In other words, he tried very hard to come back because of his intense longing to see them again. Every mission trip that I have ever been on, this is what happens. You meet people in another land and you fall in love with them. And they fall in love with you. And that's really good because if they had to stay with you for a point of, um, any longer than the short-term mission trip, it might be a different story. But you fall in love with these people and, and you long to go back. I haven't known one teenager that hasn't gone on a mission trip where the Lord has really affected them that they want to go back. They want to be back there. And they, they, they make an oath. I'm coming back. You know, I'm going to be there. And sometimes they do, but a lot of times you can't. But I praise God for things like Facebook now. Uh, I can keep up with them. I can still stay in touch and see how they're faring. And then he says in verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or a crowning crown of rejoicing is it not even you in the presence of our lord jesus christ that is coming for you are our glory and joy what gives us hope and joy uh, and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before the lord when he returns well guys it's you you're our pride and our joy and that's the motivation paul had to minister faithfully and lovingly to these saints so think about that, guys. If you are discipling someone, what's your motivation? Why are you doing what you're doing? It makes a big difference to Jesus. It makes a big difference to God. And is it to present them, as Paul said, complete and mature in Christ? To lovingly see the saints in the presence of God? That's the proper motivation. That's what you should do. Turn to uh, Romans fifteen sixteen, please. Romans fifteen sixteen. And I'm going to read you this passage from the New Living Translation. Romans 15:16, Paul says, I am a special messenger from Christ Jesus to you Gentiles. I bring you the good news so that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God made holy by the Holy Spirit. So I have reason to... Be enthusiastic about all Christ Jesus has done through me in my service to God. Remember in Hebrews 12 too, it tells us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And that's what Paul is saying. I'm a special messenger from Christ to you and I bring you the good news that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God. In other words, you're my offering. You're my thank offering. You're my, my peace offering. You're my, my, my offering of praise to God. And that's why I'm so enthusiastic about what Jesus has done through me, through you. Think of someone that you've led to the Lord and helped disciple. Won't it be cool to introduce them to Christ in heaven, like I said a little bit earlier, right? So proud to introduce Bubba to Jesus and that Jesus knows Bubba. It's worth all the pain, all the inconvenience that you go through during your time in discipleship. Discipleship is not an easy work. It is not a convenient work. It costs. It's going to cost. I mean, I just got to be honest with you. You have to sacrifice if you're going to be an effective discipler. And that's something that, since that's what God is asking of us, and I know that we all want to please him, something that we just got to get over. The fact that it is going to be inconvenient. But look at the joy it brings. Paul endured all kinds of suffering for that joy. And the question is, of course, do we? All right. In verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. You help establish new believers by the means of ministering to them personally. 
Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. Now, Paul is speaking of himself and Silas. Uh, he wanted to know how these people were doing, and he just couldn't wait any longer. I suppose that if you are a, a parent who has a child who is expecting, and you know the baby's due at any moment, you want to know, is it here yet? How is it? Right? And if you're a grandmom, you don't want to leave it to your husband to get the details. Right? What, did she have the baby? Yeah, she had the baby. What was it? A boy. Yeah. Well, how, how, how heavy is it? It's a boy. How long is it? It's a boy. <laughs> right? You can no longer endure it. Then you find out for yourself what's going on. So they had to stay in Athens alone because of the persecution. But they sent Timothy, their brother and minister of God, verse 2, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to encourage you concerning your faith. So Timothy is sort of Paul's proxy here. He's going to have a personal ministry, a personal time of ministering to them through Timothy. Um, he had to have a lot of confidence in Timothy, right? And Timothy was quite an asset to Paul. He was quite a bit younger than Paul, but he, he had a heart for ministry. And like I said, every Paul or every Pauline has got to have a Timothy, someone that you can work with. And the question is, is do you? Do you have a Paul? Do you have a Timothy? Well, you should have both. Paul knew how to select and train Christian leaders, and Timothy was one of his finest. In Acts chapter 16, verse 2, you can turn there, it tells us that Timothy had proved himself for several years in his own local church before Paul enlisted him. It says in verse 2 in Acts chapter 16 that he, that is Timothy, was well spoken of by brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. He had an excellent reputation, which means for Paul that this young man is good for ministry. He is good for ministry. Now, some people would say, oh, you mean he's good to be used? No, he's good for ministry, man. You don't know how how high calling it is to be a priest of God, to be a minister of the Lord. This is a privileged young man, a gifted young man, a servant of the Most High God. And he had an excellent reputation, highly esteemed. And he was probably a teenager at the time, but he didn't start his ministry by teaching or preaching. It wasn't that they'd heard him teach and preach and thought, well, this guy, you know, he's, he's got it. He could get his own YouTube channel. He's so good. It wasn't that at all. He was a good servant. He was servant-hearted. He had to be servant-hearted because he's going to travel with Paul, and he's taken the place of a young man named John Mark. John Mark couldn't handle it. Remember, John Mark left halfway through the first missionary journey because uh, a lot of scholars think it was because he couldn't handle the fact that his uncle Barnabas was no longer the leader, and Paul's calling the shots, and, and Paul was sort of an A-personality type guy. So he probably was, you know, straightforward and blunt and didn't really worry about his feelings so much. And he also, um, Paul was sick a lot, so that would be left to the, the junior member of the staff to clean up after him, you know, and that probably didn't sit well for him either. So he left. He left the ministry. But those things that he had done is what Timothy would do next to Paul, day in and day out. And blessed are you if you have a child or a young person who can do the dirty work and do it without complaint and do it willingly knowingly that I'm not really serving Paul although this is an honor to be with this guy I'm serving the Lord God and so clean up his mess no big deal not at all do what he says absolutely come and go as he pleases absolutely before you elevate anyone to leadership status of any kind, a person needs to be proved. You've got to watch their faithfulness. You've got to watch their growth in the word. And you have to watch their attitude. 
Attitude means a lot to the Lord. Have you noticed that as we're going through Exodus? That their attitude is everything to God. And Timothy was proved. And we see Paul's estimate of him in Philippians chapter 2. Why don't you go there? You can see what Paul thought of this young guy. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, he tells the Philippians, to whom he is sending Timothy, by the way, he says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Jesus Christ. In other words, others are going to go for their own profit, for their own needs to be met. And Paul will later call those kind of people hirelings. They're there in it for the ease and the comfort and the paycheck. And once that's gone, so are they. When it gets hard, they leave. But you know his proven character, verse 22, that as a son with his father, he served me with the gospel. In other words, as a son would do with his father. Uh, you know, we had that close, tight relationship, and he served me in the gospel. Notice three things. First of all, he's like-minded. Literally, that means to be one-souled. It's often translated kindred spirit. They're getting in touch with their Anne of the Green Gables, okay? Having a bosom buddy of a kindred spirit. Anybody know Anne of Green Gables? Okay, look at these guys. You wouldn't admit it if you did know it, would you? Timothy was in sync with Paul in feeling and thinking and in spirit, and especially in his love for the church. He had a heart for the people. Notice that he was sincerely caring, right? One who will sincerely care for your state. The idea is that he would regard their spiritual interest with a genuine tenderness and a concern. I am truly concerned about your spiritual welfare. I am truly concerned about the pain you're going through. I'm truly concerned that you understand how God can work in this situation. I am truly concerned that you find your wholeness in Jesus Christ. I am truly concerned. And notice also that he was, had proven character. And we talked about that. Um, literally, that means the test of metals. The test of metals. Like if they were purifying silver, right? They would heat that metal up until it was in a molten state. And all the dross, the, the, the garbage that would be in the metal would rise to the top. And they skim that off, cool it down, and then heat it up again. And trials tend to do that to you. That heats up that metal that's within you, that spiritual silver and causes all the dross, the nastiness, the ugliness to come to the top, and then the spirit skims it off the top, and it cools off again. And each time this happens, it's becoming more and more proven, more and more purified. And Timothy was of proven metal, okay? He was found faithful to put the needs of the church above his own. Rare souls... Rare souls to find one like Timothy is like finding a treasured item. Um, I know that all of you are hoping that one day when you're remodeling your home that you'll tear down a wall and find a box in there with about $500 million that you don't know how it got there. And, you know, well, there was a guy who bought a painting at an auction. It was, you know, nothing special. It was just something that he liked. And he wanted to reframe it. And when he took the f old frame off, he found that there was an original copy of, the, copy of the Declaration of Independence in that painting. In that ordinary painting, he found a priceless item. And that's what it's like to find someone who is ministry-minded, who is good for the ministry like Timothy. Unfortunately, they're rare but as I pray all the time, may God increase their tribe. Okay? Now his mission, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, should he choose to accept it, 
was to help establish these Christians by means of the teaching of the word of God. Look at verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 3.2. To establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Timothy is going to do exactly as Paul did when he went to establish people in the faith, right? Paul was a great example. Acts 14. Why don't you turn to the book of Acts, start at verse, chapter 14, and we're going to go through four different verses in the book of Acts. All right? This is where we get the model of planting churches and establishing churches is through what Paul did in the book of Acts. Chapter 14, verse 22, it says, He was strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, giving them the straight-up truth. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean you have to go through tribulations to get saved. It just means that now that you are saved, you're going to be going through tribulations. But, of course, he's calling it just as Jesus did, right? You know, in the world, you will have, right, you'll have lottery wins. You will have Disneyland's. You will, no. You will have tribulations. But be of good cheer, Jesus said. I overcame the world. And then he said in John 15, Abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing, but through me you can do all things. Acts 15.35, chapter 15, verse 35. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. So the establishment of the believer in Christ, the establishment of a church involves teaching and preaching, exhorting and strengthening and teaching and preaching. Okay. Then Acts chapter 18, verse 11, we see Paul doing for a year and six months, Acts 18, 11, teaching the word of God among them. And then Acts 28 Verse 30 and 31. Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house. This is in Rome. And received all who came to him. And this is what he did to establish them in the faith. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. No one forbidding him. He knew what he was talking about. No one could shut him up. And he taught the word of God. Get a hint here? Look at Acts chapter 17. Pop back a few chapters, okay? And here we have a description of how Paul ministered the word at Thessalonica. Okay? Look at verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis, oh jeez, and Apollonius, Yeah, they came to Thessalonica, Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Notice in verse 2, it says Paul reasoned. That means there was debate and discussion. He opened the word, and he explained its meaning. And in verse 3, it says, opening and alleging, which means he gave evidence for them, or rather laid out for them in an orderly way for everyone to see what he was saying. So he just reasoned with them. He brought it out logically. He could point to the scriptures and make his point. Now here's the point for us. To effectively disciple another, you must be sure to approach them 
and relate to them in a very loving way and to minister the word of God to them. The word of God. You might be tempted just to minister your experience to them. What your wisdom has gained over the years of pain. And really that's not going to leave them with much to hang on. It really has to be the word of God. The word of God is living. It is the word of God that brings about stability in a person's life. It's not enough merely to preach and declare the word. There must be the teaching, the proving, the explaining, which means you have to be a student of God's word. Now that word allege in verse 3, it can also mean the setting of a table. So in other words, it's like you're preparing a meal for them and you set the food on the table. Now the hope is, is that you've got a lot more in the refrigerator than what you put on the table, but at least you've got something to put on the table. And that's what fulfilling the Great Commission looks like. That's what discipling is, guys. Timothy's there and he's gonna build them up. He's going to edify them by teaching them the word and establishing them in correct doctrine while at the same time showing them love and understanding, compassion and patience, okay? It's not gonna be a one and done. It isn't going to be a one half hour sermon and then he's out and everybody's got it and you can go home and they're perfect in Christ. It's not gonna be that. It's gonna be a day after day after day thing. Warren Wiersbe said, the Christian who is ignorant of the Bible is prey to every wind of doctrine and never will be established in the Lord. Most Christians, and I'd say even, I won't say all of our Christian teens, but a lot of Christian teens have only a Sunday school's knowledge of the Word of God. They've heard the stories, but they don't understand the doctrine. Or they understand a lot of doctrine, but they've never had it reach from their head to their heart. They've never made that connection. Um, it, the experience has been one foot in the world and feeding off of the philosophies and the teachings of the world and one foot in the church learning the doctrines of the church. And that kind of stuff, you know, sometimes it gets polluted, doesn't it? Sometimes it gets polluted. And of course, the, usually the dog that wins is the one that's been fed the most. So if you understand that analogy, okay, all right. If church members would adopt new Christians and encourage them and teach them and fellowship with them, there would be fewer spiritual casualties. The mature saints in the church must help younger Christians to grow in Christ. That's just the way it is. And if it's not happening, then guess what? It's not happening. All right, look at verse 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we see that we establish them through the means of a loving relationship. We establish them through the means of the word, and we establish them through the means of shared painful experience or shared suffering would be a better way to put it. No one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, meaning Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. Effective discipling involves being able to relate to the common pain and suffering that you're going through. The Thessalonians, they are suffering persecution because of their faith. Paul can say, hey, I understand that, been there, done that. Because you tend to listen to someone who's been there and done that, don't you? Someone who has suffered the pain and successfully made it through to the other side. Um, <clears throat> and Paul reminds them of the word that he'd already taught them, right? He warned them that afflictions were coming. And, you know, sometimes we can hear those kind of warnings coming from the pulpit. And you, and you know it. You have it up here, right? But you really don't believe it's going to happen. You know, you're not really convinced it's going to happen. You may, maybe you forget about it or you think for some reason you're going to be able to escape it. But uh, Paul was pretty clear. Those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And Paul's saying, though, don't feel bad about us. Don't be surprised to hear people are chasing us around Greece, throwing rocks at us, trying to kill us. 
um, John Corson says, appointments with trouble are already on our calendars. We told you this would happen. It's all part of the program. It's all part of the program. Remember Ananias in Acts chapter 9. The Lord told Ananias about Paul, that he's going to show him what he was going to have to suffer greatly for the kingdom of God. Just think about that. When you came to Christ, when you accepted the Lord, if the Lord revealed to you at that moment what you're going to have to suffer for his name. (laughs) Most of us would have bailed out right then and there, right? Paul was made of a different metal, I think. Uh, Later, Paul would write, Blessed be the Father of mercies who comforts us in our troubles that we may be able to comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received. Well, why would he need comfort? Because of the trials that he went through, right? And as Tozer said that um, before God can use a person greatly, he must allow that person to be hurt deeply. And again, is that because God is just being mean? Is he, is he some sort of a masochist? No. He knows that you really can't comfort others genuinely unless we've been comforted ourselves. Jesus Christ came and, he, and he, he, t- he didn't have to suffer like all of humanity did, but he chose to, right? And he entered into our suffering so that he could enter in personally with you and your suffering. He could identify. And having people who can identify with your suffering is always a comforting thing. When you've been there and you have done that, you're legit. I thank God for all the brothers and sisters who have gone before me and are further down the road of faith than I am that have gone through it. They've been through the faith mill and been ground and they made it. It's a joy and it's a comfort. Um, It's hard when you do meet a Christian who's gone through the suffering and they've bailed on their faith. Or they're just stuck with the, of faith because they're afraid to let it go, but they're bitter, and they're unforgiving, and they're crushed. Uh, there was a, a, a lady whose husband founded a church in Tempe, and it was a, a big church then, but, I mean, now it was a big, is a big church, but then it was not so big, and they had kicked her husband out as the pastor, and it just left her with a very bitter and angry taste in her mouth. Now, that kind of stuff happens all the time, everywhere. I would rather have known that she got through it and could still praise the Lord even though she didn't see the promising fruit like they're seeing now. We watched that video called uh, The Finger of God, um, and there was this evangelist who had a, uh, a revival and we're about 95,000 people attended. And, and tens of thousands got saved. And many, many hundreds got healed. And it was a glorious thing to see, the, the finger of God working. I mean, it was exciting. And, and people were jazzed, and they left that meeting with, um, with glowing hearts, except for this one lady, stuck in a wheelchair. She went there specifically praying, asking, pleading with God to be healed. And while she watched many others get healed, she didn't get healed. She was left in her wheelchair. But even though there were tears streaming down her face, there was still this sense of joy when she says, but I did get the thing that I needed the most, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So how could I hate or be angry with the one who saved my soul? And even though he did not heal me from my wheelchair, he filled me with his presence, he filled me with his spirit. And she walked away with joy. See, I need to hear that. I need to know that. Because there are things in our lives that are crushing. Uh, A husband who has been unfaithful, a child that's gone wayward or a failed business or financial ruin or the death of a loved one. You know, you don't have to go through the exact same experience to be a comfort, 
but you have to go through the hard times to be able to relate to God and to be there to show how God came through for you, whether it was for good or for the bad. All right, verse 5. I don't know if we're going to have time to finish all this, but I'll do the best I can here. Um, you know what? I think I'm going to wait. We've got five, four minutes left here. I think I'm just going to stop here. And I'll bring it to a close, and I'll finish this next week. Paul is loving on these people to establish them in the faith. That's what discipleship is all about. Do you feel that you are established enough in the faith? Well, I can guarantee you there is an adversary you have who is looking for ways for cracks in your armor to destroy your faith. And none of you should take it for granted that your faith can't be shipwrecked. I don't know if you ever heard of a man named George Templeton. George Templeton, unfortunate last name. Templeton the Rat, right, from Charlotte's Web. Well, he was to be what Billy Graham became. He was very much involved in the Youth for Christ movement. He was a strong leader, a charismatic speaker, and many came to Christ during his crusades. And they literally predicted that he would be what Billy Graham actually became. At one point, he saw a picture of a woman in a magazine. Uh, she was from sub-Saharan sub, sub Africa. And she was dying, and her, her village was dying, all because there was no water. And he thought to himself, how hard would it be for God to cause rain to come upon this village? And that point he could not get over. It was a sticking point for him. He could not get over that. And he abandoned his faith. And he turned into a full-on adversary of Christianity. Close to his death, he was interviewed. And he asked them, do you miss anything about Christianity? He said, yes, I miss my Jesus. I miss Jesus. Yeah, exactly. You see, the point being here is that don't take anything for granted, guys. When you, when you intentionally put yourself in a place to hear God speak to you like you have tonight, take it seriously. <clears throat> Expect that God is speaking to your heart. My whole purpose is to strengthen you in your faith, to help establish you. When that onslaught comes at that gate, that you stand firm, no matter what the onslaught is. No matter what the onslaught is, that you would stand firm. And the next thing that I would challenge you with tonight, and we'll go ahead and come on up, guys. Are you ready to help establish young believers? Or are you doing that? Are you involved? Are you ready to love on someone? Can you target someone in your heart? I'll ask the Holy Spirit to help you zero in on a person that you can mentor, that you can get involved in their life. For some of you, it may be just your children. Well, praise God, do that at least. Some of you, it might be somebody else that you know at work. Somebody else in your family. Are you ready to love on them, to get involved? Are you ready to share your own pained experiences? To be genuine and authentic and open up about your own failures as well as your successes? Are you ready to get into the word with them? And help them to become 
established in it. Well, that's where we're at tonight. Next week, there's a couple more things. But mostly, are you are we ready to remember that Jesus Christ is coming back? And that you and they need to be ready. All right, let's stand. Well, Father, I give you thanks for this evening being able to teach your word. And I know that um, it spoke to someone somewhere. And I pray now that you would bring fruit out of it, peaceable fruit. Fruit that brings joy into their lives and being obedient. We know, Lord God, that it's not your will that anyone should perish. And it's also our commission to get out and preach the word and to share the gospel and to make disciples. So I pray, Father, for these people that you would bring into their lives someone who is hurting, who is not quite as far down the road of faith as they are, and help them to just stop their pace and walk back and put their arm around them and begin to disciple them, Lord. And I pray that they would just be filled with the joy and the power of the Holy Spirit when they do so, knowing that they are seeking to fulfill the commission and that one day they will present them to you and be able to see your smile. So please, 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 Holy Spirit, bless these people. Make your face to shine on them. Be gracious to them. Lift up your countenance. Give them peace. Help them fulfill the law of Christ by loving one another. Help them to walk, Father, with you. Shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.